to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz. Hello everybody and welcome to IEP Radio. This is episode 15. Today we're going to be uh, completing part four of a four-part series regarding mold remediation. Um, we're taking a look now today at post-remediation verification and uh, basically assessing or testing after remediation or cleaning efforts have been completed. You know, uh, there's been a delay. Uh, I had wanted to get this podcast out to you guys um, a couple of weeks ago, but uh, between work and um, uh, a couple other factors, I also found that I was running into the fact that every time I tried to tackle a topic uh, to do with the limitations uh, of post-remediation verification, I found myself having to dive deeper in order to find a way to explain it. And so I ended up creating a PowerPoint presentation I'm going to actually bring up here for you guys, uh, actually right about now, um, so that we can get right into it. So um, again, at this point uh, in the series, we've already talked about fundamentals, kind of an overview, that 30,000 foot perspective of what a mold remediation project looks like. We dove deeper in part two and talked about um, containment and engineering controls. Um, things like that. Um, part three kind of really got into the weeds dealing with the actual remediation, uh, physical removal, cleaning of a containment. Uh, and then now we're getting into uh, the testing that sometimes follow typically when there has been mold identified and uh, possibly or especially if you're somebody who suffers from a chronic illness or an environmental exposure concern, um, you're likely going to have some type of assessment performed. Um, and so I think we should probably start off with uh, an honest question, which is, well, what is a post-remediation verification? And for those of you that are watching, you'll be able to certainly see my screen. And so I'll try to narrate this for those of you that are just listening to the podcast. But Dr. Robert Brandy uh, created this book. Uh, there's now a fifth edition, but I pulled my reference from the fourth edition right there. Um, it's called Post-Remediation Testing and Verification for Mold and Bacteria. Um, I got to hand it to uh, Dr. Brandy's. Uh, what an awesome book. Um, I, I don't get any commission or any, I have no affiliation with Dr. Brandy's, but you got to get that book. Um, there's a link right there on the screen uh, to where you can find a copy of it, but this has got to be one of those books that you have on your shelf. Certainly if you're an IEP, um, certainly if you're a remediation company, so you know what may be coming at you, but even as a, a client who's been involved and if, the, or the project is big enough, there's so much in this book that even to articulate it would probably take months, if not years. And he did a really good job trying to compile it. He defines post-remediation uh, and he states the following. There are many common misconceptions about post-remediation verification or PRV for mold and bacteria remediation projects. Some people think PRV is either air testing or surface testing. Other people only perform a visual inspection or possibly a white glove test as their method of a PRV. Still, others think that PRV is not necessary at all. He goes on to say in a much longer process, and I'll just kind of bullet point, that post-remediation verification is actually a process that involves many steps. Uh, you can involve uh, an IEP at the beginning of the planning stages, meaning before you do the remediation, uh, certainly during or through the remediation process, and then sometimes do some sort of quality control check on the back end or what's known as a post-remediation verification. Um, and, and, and I think that, that that was important, which is why I listed it, because it, it explains the fact that this is a process. This is not just some static sample 
we are inherently limited. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as IEPs when we're talking about PRVs. This next slide. Um, I hate to sound like an attorney here and uh, when we get into disclaimers, but I just want to make it clear that this episode, nor if we had 10 more, could possibly discuss or interpret every aspect or, or an approach and consideration for a PRV. Um, it's not a one method fits all. Um, as of the, the recording of this episode, there is not some unanimous agreement regarding how to test your environment. So you've had a mold job done in your home. There must be just one way to test it. That, that it's, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. I mean, one of the reasons this book is written from Dr. Brandy's is because of the variation. Uh, and not just from state to state organization, but government to government. I mean, it, it's all over the map. And I think we know some of those reasons are because um, we have limitations in that everyone is different. Uh, people's susceptibilities are different. Um, people's budget timeline are different. Um, and even where you live and what happened may result in a different um, expectation of what you should find in that containment area versus what you shouldn't. Um, I think our goal as IEPs, remediation companies, um, even as an occupant of that home or building, should not be to create a literal microbial-free bubble in our living spaces. Um, our homes are the world we occupy. It's, it's not a clean room. Uh, we are surrounded by many outdoor-generated microbials that when, we found, when, we're, when they're found growing indoors, we call them contaminates. Uh, what I mean to say is there's no such thing as a mold-free or bacteria-free environment. Um, that's not to say that we accept it if mold grew inside your house, that that's considered to be normal. What I'm trying to explain is that the expectation should not be mold-free or bacteria-free, and that is a kind of a term that's used in the industry, and a lot of people take it literal, I find, and, and they shouldn't. Our goal uh, should be to help ensure, uh, without ever being able to provide this with some 100% level of certainty, that your indoor environment reflects normal microbial ecology, or what I'm calling NME. Uh, the previous term coined from the S520 was normal fungal ecology. I mean, we're, we're learning as we go. We understand that it's not just about fungal. It could be about bacteria. That's why I'm using the term microbial because it includes both. So our goal is to look for normal microbial ecology. And that would be an indoor environment that when we assess it and find it really only reflects an outdoor generated or in originated source or even potentially human. I mean, we have mold and bacteria on our bodies. Uh, that are found indoors over time. So we mean that we're not expecting to find an environment where there's mold growing in uh, on the walls, on the studs, in the ceiling. That's not normal. It may be a consequence of a water damaged building or a damp building, but that's not what we consider to be normal. We want that environment to be dry ultimately and clean and free of those sorts of sources. But even when you have that environment, an environment that doesn't have mold growing or bacteria growing in it, you're still going to have background molds that you identify that have settled out or that are floating around in the samples you collect. And that doesn't always mean that it's contaminated, that you have an indoor source. It's complicated. And to the point of it being complicated, your environment's constantly changing uh, due to a lot of things, including driving forces and pathways. What are driving forces? Well, wind, temperature change. Temperatures and moisture levels, really humid outside, not so it's kind of dry inside. You're going to have a driving force. There's pathways, um, gaps, cracks, spaces uh, in your home, in the shell of your home, your walls, your ceilings, your crawl space, um, where these um, 
contaminants under the right driving force can push those things into the home. Essentially, your home is a living and breathing organism. And like that, if you sample it at one point in time, you may only reflect what it looks like at that time. It doesn't mean that it's going to look the same way in a month. Uh, it's, an, it's important for everybody involved in the process to understand that there are these inherent challenges, challenges with trying to measure a thing. And the, the thing I'm talking about is your home. It's fluid. It's, it's always trying to reach equilibrium with its surroundings. And so imagine the challenges we face as IEPs when we're trying to do PRV testing, when we're testing in a moment of time. And we'll get more to that in a second. We do have guidelines and best practices out there. Um, I've, I've brought a couple with me, the green book. Everybody knows that uh, as an IEP, I, I reference this in a little bit. And even uh, books like Dr. Brandy's uh, where um, we, we have guidelines and we have references that we can use to, as it implies, guide us towards interpreting a sample. But nothing is set in stone, and you'll learn more about that here in a bit. Um, we know that we need to understand what we under, uh, we need to apply what we understand about the home, the physiology of the mold. It's very important to understand uh, how mold and bacteria can grow, what type of environments you would expect them to grow in, and when something appears to be elevated or atypical, indicating a possible source is present, or in the case of a PRV, maybe the containment area is not clean enough. Maybe it needs to be recleaned. Maybe a bad result that was collected in your containment area doesn't mean that you have another source that's hidden. It could just mean that the containment area wasn't cleaned enough. This is part of the challenges we face as IEPs. And with the things that I've already mentioned and the things I'm about to dive into, I, I want you to understand that we are limited. There's no test that we can do. You could spend, I, 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 I lightly joke with clients who, and those who are familiar with me know I do, that I could say you could spend a million dollars in sampling and you're not going to get a guarantee of what that environment may do to you or where your exposure may occur. You probably can get a lot of good information for a million dollars, but we don't have that type of budget. And that's the other issue is that a lot of times budget and limitation will get in the way of the very thing that you want, which is a higher level of confidence that the work that was done in the, say, containment area or the work being performed was done good enough. So at this point in the remediation uh, project, um, the work has usually been done. Uh, remediation cleaning has been done, and now you're looking at this idea of doing testing. Let's identify a few things. I've kind of put them in outline form, and then I've kind of um, uh, dove deeper into them here in the slides that follow. You may already be working with an IEP um, from the beginning of your project. If you haven't, you should, if time and budget allows, to get one involved because here are some of the things that an independent IEP can help you with. They can provide you with um, a remedial scope of work, literally writing a step-by-step -step protocol of what to remediate, how to remediate it, in what order, uh, what containment controls to use, engineering controls, um, that sort of thing. They can provide oversight uh, before and during the project. So they have maybe perhaps provided a protocol for a remediation company to follow. And you can't be there every day, but you're willing to hire the IEP to maybe check in uh, every day for five or 10 minutes and just make sure that everything seems to be according to plan. Um, and also, the IEP can work with you and the remediation company to set up expectations before anything is agreed upon. So, for example, what standard of care or uh, level of cleanliness is the remediation company going to be held up to? How is that standard of care? determined? Is the IEP going to determine a successful job by visual evidence only or some form of testing? 
what is the IEP's testing criteria? Meaning whether they are doing a visual only like, oh, there's dust and I did a white glove test and I can see it, or they're doing sampling, air, surface. What constitutes a pass or a fail? Is it by spores or by fragments? Is it by um, volume or weight of dust? What is that criteria? What is the remediation company's comfort level to meet these expectations? You may find that there's a company you're working with, a remediation company, who is good by all intentions. They seem to meet um, all of the things that you would want in a remediation company, but they're just not comfortable working with you and the, and the IEP because they don't feel like they have what it takes to clean an environment to that level. That can happen, and it's happened even with myself in the past. You should also work with an IEP to clarify what questions the PRV will help address. So how are we assessing, for example? Are we, is it just that visual assessment? Are they taking moisture meet readings? Are they doing some sort of a white or black glove test to look for settled dust in an area that's just been cleaned? Are they reviewing any uh, remediation or cleaning history? So in this example, a remediation company may have been logging down what they've been doing and in what order. Um, is that IEP looking at that? Just to appreciate what they're finding and what they're doing about it. You can also clarify questions such as how are they sampling? Are they just doing air sampling and surface sampling? We'll get into that more in a little bit. Uh, how much sam sampling, that's a very challenging topic, which is one of the reasons it took me so long to get this uh, four-part um, podcast up and running. Uh, what type of analysis is being performed? Are we doing, are we, when we're collecting the sample and we send it off to a laboratory, are they doing direct examination or microscopy? Are they looking at our microscope? Are they culturing it? Are they putting the sample on a Petri dish and then putting it in an incubator and letting it grow to see what grows? Are they doing um, qPCR or quantitative polymerase chain reaction testing, DNA testing? Are they doing a, a gravimetric, uh, gravimetric dust uh, sample where they're looking at the weight of how much dust is in a containment area? What are the known limitations of each of these methods? Um, that is something that I find a lot of IEPs don't seem to do a really good job on. They'll say what they do, but they don't take the time to express the limitations, which um, ends up getting to be an issue on the back end when sometimes you find out after the fact someone's done testing, but that particular test wasn't able to detect fragments, for example, or maybe it doesn't identify um, the viability of a mold spore or structure. It only identifies total presence and there's issues with interpretation. And so it's about clarifying how are we analyzing these samples? Um, and then when, timing of the sample, are we testing 24, 48 hours after cleaning or are we waiting four to six weeks after final cleaning? Um, We'll, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more, but um, I did mention here that as a couple of examples, if you're testing one to five days after a remediation project is completed, typically the question you're addressing is how effective was the cleaning by the remediation company? Because it's only been a few days and so it's just been cleaned. And so if you sample it and it looks clean according to that IEP's testing criteria, then that's what that address. If you're testing four to six weeks or longer, you're typically more addressing whether or not there's any additional sources that may exist indoors. What I mean by that is if you sample weeks or months after cleaning is done, and let's say you get a bad result, you, you, you can't say that that was due to a lack of good cleaning necessarily by the remediation company. 
How do you know that that bad finding that you collected in a sample that's weeks or months old from the date that the remediation company finished cleaning doesn't reflect a new source? Maybe the remediation company did a really good job cleaning. They did their job. They did what you paid them to do. But you have another source that recontaminated that the environment, and, and, and that's what you're now seeing in the sample. So it's important to address the timing of when you're doing any sampling or assessment and what you're really going to be able to help answer when you are sampling at the time you do. As I mentioned, I would do, I, I kind of want to uh, get into the weeds a little bit regarding some of these points that I kind of breezed by. I'm just going to review here the different points in the outline I mentioned. The first one, of course, is that an IEP can help you with remediation scope of work. Uh, on IEP radio episodes 4, 12, and 13, that's part one, two, and three that get into the details and, uh, and, and certain expectations of what you may see in your home or office. This is what I mean. They can help you with these things. And you can visit those um, podcasts. I've provided the links on here uh, to get a better idea. Um, you also want to work with the IEP um, to make sure that you've identified all possible sources of water, moisture, elevated humidity in the home or the office, right, this building. Um, you may be focused on an area of concern in the kitchen where there was a leak, but maybe you didn't realize that there was a um, bathroom shower issue that resulted in hidden growth in a wall nearby the kitchen. And you'd kind of want to know that. And again, it's not about being psychic. We don't have a crystal ball. We can't guarantee that we can identify everything. But if there's something that the IEP can identify up front that's not part of the original concern, that may play a role down the road in clearance testing or flat out what you remediate. You may have to adjust your scope of work upon further review. So working with an IEP up front can help you avoid these last minute um, situations that can cost a lot of money and time. The IEP, right, can also provide um, oversight of the project before, during, and after. We're talking about they are your eyes on the ground. Uh, does the containment area appear secure and inclusive of all the affected suspected areas of concern? Um, are the critical barriers, for example, these barriers that are covering up the supply registers um, or exposed dr uh, plumbing drains, are they installed? Uh, what engineering controls are in place and do they appear to have the intended effect? So sometimes a remediation company will be using uh, negative air pressure or even positive air pressure. The point is, is that you can have an IEP be your, your reference um, to ensure or help ensure that everything is set up and working as intended. Uh, because you probably don't know is the issue, right? You don't know if it's set up correctly. Uh, you're also able to have an IEP, depending on what you agree upon, work directly with the remediation company so they can review past current documentation from the remediation company, um, showing what work has been done to improve the environment or to address it. You can also uh, have, this happens a lot with me, but the remediation company may want to call the IEP up and ask them a quick question. Um, we are inside the containment area. We found a problem or we, it's in a tough to get area. We're trying to figure out whether or not we need to pull the tub or can we do this instead? And having an IEP on your side to address those questions uh, and who is prepared to answer those questions is a huge asset for you. Obviously, I mentioned earlier, having an IEP as part of the process uh, to oversee the work being done, stopping by the job site. Let's say the remediation is sizable and it's gonna take a week to get done. 
be nice to have that remediation company uh, be in communications or maybe not uh, with the IEP who can show up and take a look to ensure containment is set up properly, controls are in place, that the work that's being done is followed in the right order, that any ingress or egress or that's entering and exiting a containment area is being done in a responsible manner. Do you have some company who's out there who set up a containment well, uh, but they are leaving the access door to the containment open um, and, and, and exposing the other parts of the environment as people are just walking in and out without that consideration. It's having those eyes on the ground to help you uh, ensure that the work being done is executed properly. And of course, then obviously having an IEP involved at the beginning and during the project really helps shape and makes for an easier transition when the IEP needs to figure out, you know, okay, here's the type of uh, PRV that we're going to perform. Here's what we're going to be looking for. Here's the type of testing we're going to be doing. And we're going to talk more about that here in a second. So identify expectations up front. Um, earlier, I had mentioned that, you know, what standard of care or of level of cleanliness is the remediation company going to be held to? So there are IEPs out there that don't even test. Um, their main um, criteria is, is a visual one of cleanliness. They go out there and they visually assess the work that was done. Uh, does it see, appear to be free of any mold growth? Is there any debris uh, on any surfaces that they can run their uh, finger on, like a white glove or a black glove test? Um, that may be their criteria. It's important you know this up front. Um, for somebody who has uh, a chronic illness, um, you're probably going to want more than just a visual assessment because visuals are helpful. Um, I would argue they're uh, as important, but there's a lot of stuff that you can't see in that containment. And that's a lot of times the stuff that we're talking about uh, that if you did some level of sampling, uh, whether it's air surface and depending on the type of analysis, you may be able to detect. Um, are they, uh, is the IEP doing real-time measurements? Okay, so they go out there. Um, some companies like to use particle counters. Now, particle counters don't tell you what's in the air. They tell you how much of what size of a particle is in the air. Um, but sometimes IEPs will use them as a gauge. Um, if you have, for example, an air filtration device that's operating inside of a containment, they're going to have an expectation that certain particles of a certain size are less than the outdoor environment. Um, and that would help kind of uh, gauge the effectiveness of the scrubbing machine. Some uh, IEPs uh, may seem a little bit more uh, natural to you. We'll use moisture meters. Can they measure the areas that were supposedly dried out and do they detect elevated levels? Uh, and it's a newer thing, but some people are using like a fungal enzyme test, micrometer is one, and ATP testing. There's a few people that do that where they're, they're looking at with fungal enzymes, it's, a, it's an enzyme that comes from uh, primarily fung, uh, fungus um, to test for efficacy, meaning do they see any on the surface? Um, it, there's ATP testing. ATP testing is a little bit more broad. Um, it, it's looking for anything with a somatic cell in it. So technically I could take the swab from an ATP machine and rub it across my arm or on the top of my tongue and get a high result. But um, ATP testing did come from the food and medical industry. And so it, the, the theory is, is that if there's not any of that period on there, it should be pretty sterile. And inside of a containment area, it's not going to be clean room ready. It's not going to be sterile operating room ready. Um, but ATP testing could be a good way to pre-screen uh, a containment area in preparation for, say, a more costly assessment. The next part of this, of course, is how is that standard of care to determine? We talked a little bit now about this already um, here. I won't spend too much time on it, but, you know, are they just doing a black glove, white glove assessment? 
um, what what is their what are their levels? Um, uh, no elevated levels of moisture in the building or in the containment area. Particulate matter comparison with outdoors or other areas outside containment, or some sort of a proprietary interpretation of things like fungal enzymes. So, in other words, what what is a pass for fungal enzymes on a surface? Well, usually the companies that produce these technologies will have their own criteria. They'll have a white paper and they'll have some level, hopefully, of research that was done to give the IEP a guideline to follow. And um, so that's something to consider. And of course, when you're actually collecting samples, well, well, what are they doing? Are they taking air samples and sending it off to a laboratory? Are they taking uh, surface samples like tape or swabs off of a piece of lumber that they see discoloration on and they want to send off to a lab to see if there's evidence of growth? Are they taking surface dust samples? Uh, some of you that are listening are familiar with ERMI and Hertz Me type sampling. That, that's a kind of an example of what I'm talking about. Um, and of, co- of course, always, and this should be kind of a bullet point for every slide, is what are the limitations about any of the points above? So if I'm doing a black glove, white glove test, that means that I'm limited to being able to pick up things that my eyesight can detect on my glove. And if your eyesight's not 20-20 or you don't have corrected vision, you know, can, is that a really good metric for somebody? Is that a good metric by itself for somebody with a chronic illness? I'm going to say answers probably no. But again, what's the parameters? Maybe somebody does have a chronic illness, but they're living paycheck to paycheck, and they'd rather have an IEP come out there at least and do a good visual assessment, maybe a white glove, black glove, and at least give that opinion than do nothing at all. This testing criteria, uh, I'm going to bring up again in more detail on a follow-up section, but it's really important that we understand what is a pass or a fail. Um, With the advent of newer types of testing uh, methodologies, Um, testing the dust, interpreting the dust, um, enzyme testing, things like that. Um, It's really uncharted territory. There's there's guidelines, but they're few. And and, and even within those guidelines, there's differing opinions of of what should be acceptable. So it's kind of like the Wild West in a sense. So it's important that you understand those limitations. You're not going to get a highly satisfying answer. Uh, Like you're not going to likely get an answer of, this type of test will guarantee you that you can re-enter the home and not have a problem. If any IEP tells you that, that should be a red flag that something's not right. But you can get educated. And that's the point of this podcast, and that's the point of you working with these people, is that you understand what the limitations are so that you can help determine what is an appropriate level of risk versus confidence level. I'm willing to pay more to have a higher level of confidence in these results, that sort of thing. Okay, so... Obviously, we're getting into the weeds a little bit, and a couple of you may have already had to press the pause button. That's okay. There's a lot of information here. Um, it took me a couple of weeks just to put what you're seeing on your screen right now down and, and just kind of formulate my thoughts. Right now, we're going to talk about the IEP's testing criteria. I'm going to give you a few examples of what I mean. So we, we asked earlier what determines a pass or a fail, and there's, there's different ways of comparing environment, environmental samples, and I want to reference, um, again, Dr. Brandy's book, that I mentioned earlier, post-remediation testing and verification for mold and bacteria. He has a fifth edition out. I am looking at the fourth edition right now. He, he mentions what a lot of us are already familiar with, um, but just, uh, just to explain for those, especially lis- um, listening only, there's a lot of times there's indoor versus outdoor comparison. So what we're talking about right now is when, a, when an IEP goes into the containment, they will sample it. And the question is, is, well, how do I know that that sample, whatever I'm seeing in the results, if it's good or bad? And so one of the ways we do that 
um, is, for example, um, a comparison between indoor and outdoor. Remember earlier, I was talking about normal microbial ecology. That insinuates that you have mold and bacteria and other things that are outside, floating around, settling out, getting kicked back up, that it's not a microbial-free outdoor environment. We wouldn't be here as a species if it wasn't for those sorts of organisms. So that's normal. So let's say, for example, we test outside and we do culturing and we find out that there's 100 colony forming units of a particular species, but there's only 50 of it inside. That could be, uh, depending on the person and the interpretation, a passing score. It's less than the outdoors and it's good. And I'm simplifying this, by the way, okay? So understand that there's a lot more involved than just looking at those two indoor-outdoor samples. This is, these are just simple examples to illustrate points. Um, you can also compare it to control areas. So like, same example, you can, you can take an air sample. Let's say you culture it. So you're growing mold on a Petri dish. And let's say you find 50 colony-forming units inside. Let's say you find it in the area of concern. That would be the containment area in this example. But you find 25 colony-forming units in an indoor control sample location. So it's outside of the containment. Let's say the containment's in the kitchen area. And you sampled and you found 50 colony forming units, but you found 25 colony forming units in the living room. Depending on other variables, depending on an outdoor control sample, depending on the living conditions, where is, is there carpet, is there not carpet, are there kids, do they leave their doors and windows open, you could have an IEP look at this and say, I think there's still a, a problem in the containment area and we need to go back and either reassess or reclean or both. There's also comparisons with samples to standards, as it were. Um, the World Health Organization, the Commission of the European Communities. Um, I pulled this again, um, referencing uh, Dr. Brandy's book. Um, uh, he does a great job giving these examples where, say, for example, the World Health Organization, they had 1988, they, they titled it Acceptable or Low Levels of Culturable Mold Spores in Indoor Environments. And basically what it said is it's considered to be accessible, uh, um, acceptable if it was 150 colony-forming units if it's mixed fungi, meaning non-pathological, non or 500 colony forming units, if mainly cladosporium or area. And so there was this criteria from back when um, that said if it's less than that or equal to, it's considered to be uh, acceptable or low levels. D I want to I want to uh, defend Dr. Brandy's too that he's doing he does a lot of reporting in this book. But he, he definitely acknowledges, and so do a lot of other organizations, that for people who have unique susceptibilities, that would include a lot of you listening, that the levels may need to be much lower. But the, question, the, the issue is, is that no one really knows what that is for each person. So we start with a minimum criteria or guideline, such as this one, and you can work backwards from there. There's also um, comparison of data uh, against data collected from professionals uh, such as like Dr. Larry Robertson, who worked with the state of Texas a while ago, back in 1991, um, had come up with this mold spore criteria, which basically said that in an air sample, you, it needed to be less than or equal to 2,000 spores per cubic meter if the breakdown was one-third cladosporium, one-third combination of aspergillus penicillium species, and one-third other. So again, crude measurement, but it was something that stuck really well um, that you may find an IEP is going to use as a broad criteria to pass or fail your containment area. Uh, pre and post remediation testing, it's more of a percentage reduction. So not everybody has the luxury to do this, but if you were able to do baseline testing up front, pre-testing, pre-remediation testing, you were to do the work and now you do post-testing and those results show significant improvement, 
that that could be used as a measure to show that the environment has been uh, remediated and cleaned appropriately. Now, again, it's all relative. Um, if you did pre-testing um, during the winter time and you have really low outdoor counts as a control, and then you do post-testing as a clearance in the springtime, because it's a long, ongoing, drawn-out remedial process, you have to consider that you're going to, on the whole, have higher levels of indoor mold counts than you did in the wintertime because of the influence from the outdoors. There's a lot to consider. The other thing that is done uh, sometimes is what we call sequential sampling analysis, where in, in uh, Dr. Brandy's book, he mentions uh, you'll have a company that will go out in the field, they'll collect spore trap sampling. And right now we're focusing a lot on air samples. I want to be clear that I'm not advocating um, that I'm a, a, a fan of just air or just surface. I'm just reporting information right now. Um, but they'll, in, in this example of sequential sampling, they would collect a, a spore trap sample, but they would also collect a, a Petri dish or culture sample. They would send both of those samples off to the laboratory, and then they would process the spore traps first. They'd culture or incubate uh, the, the, the Petri dish samples, but they wouldn't analyze them. And depending on how well or good the data comes back from the spore trap sampling, they may say, well, this level is low enough to where I don't feel we need to uh, analyze the Petri dish sampling. But what will happen in other cases is if those spore trap samples come back marginal, I'm not really sure if it's a pass or a fail, they may opt to culture the other sample to see if there's any evidence of either recent growth or growth that would indicate it came from uh, that the, the fungal structures came from that that area that was affected that they remediated. Another uh, thing that uh, we look at and a lot of people look at are um, primary, secondary, and tertiary colonizers, uh, or in plain English, indicator molds. A lot of us that are listening here uh, are aware of molds like Stachybotrys or Catonium, and um, uh, in particular, Catodium globosome, uh, Stachybotrys shatarum, and there's certainly a number of others, uh, can be looked at in the sample. And you may have an IEP that looks at an air sample where if they find more than even one spore of either one of those two molds or others, they will fail it, even though the quantity is low. It's so atypical to have that in certain environments, especially in remediated environments, that if they find it, it could be an indication to the IEP that this environment either still has a problem in the containment, there's still a source that wasn't remediated, maybe there was a wall that was opened up but not far enough, or that the containment area wasn't cleaned up. Again, a word of caution, depending on the environment where you're sampling, some of these molds that are considered to be better indicators in certain climates may just be common background outside. So it's really up to the IEP to once again understand the climate that they're working in and the physiology of the molds that they're working with to get have a better idea of does this mold is it really a good indicator or is it not is it not that uncommon to find this mold outside and so maybe that's where it came from. And then finally, HVAC system and ductwork. Um, I'll just briefly mention that uh, sampling the surface and ductwork is kind of feels to me akin to sampling um, a rug or a carpet that's known to collect and build up dust. Um, but as again, some guidelines, um, NADCA is a uh, duct cleaning association, if you will, um, and they have a standard ACR 2006. Um, they define an acceptable level of cleanliness for dust on the surface of the duct to be less than or equal to one milligram per 100 centimeters square of surface. Um, they 
they go on to talk about uh, visibly clean to them as a condition in which the interior surfaces of the HVAC system are free from non-adhered substances and debris. Um, it's ductwork. It's not a, an operating table. So it's not going to be debris free, but um, they're going to do, it, it, we're trying to avoid having a contaminated section of ductwork. Maybe mold did grow or it grew upstream of the ductwork and it was so heavy that it contaminated the ductwork. So there are guidelines out there if the ductwork is in question. It's not always in question. There are homes, plenty of homes that don't have ductwork. There's plenty of homes that have ductwork where the return and the supply duct were uh, far, or the, or the HVAC system itself was not even close to where the water damage occurred. And again, we end up talking more about minimums of what you want to do versus maximums. Because if we, if you asked us to sample everything and anything, it, I use this joke that it would be cheaper to sell the home sometimes. Now, maybe not literally, but with the amount of sampling that would be done and the time it takes to analyze it and then put it report form, you could be spending thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And then that's the natural human uh, reaction is usually to kind of go backwards from there and say, okay, well, maybe we won't do that. Let's just start with this. But you do want to be a cognizant because uh, on the flip side of things, earlier I had mentioned that if you're working with an IEP, that let's say you have a problem in the kitchen and it was in the, the kitchen sink uh, cabinet, there was mold da uh, damage and it's going to be remediated. They're going to put up a containment and you're going to be doing sampling in the environment. But what if you did have an air conditioning system that was moldy, that was contaminating the environment outside the kitchen containment, and that at, during a clearance test, you did sampling, and you found out that it, was, it looked contaminated, but you didn't know where it was coming from, only to find out later that it had nothing to do with the kitchen area. It had everything to do with the air conditioning system. So again, we don't have psychic capabilities. We don't have x-ray vision that allows us to know or see these things, always. But being mindful as an IEP to consider other sources, a crawl space, could that be communicating with the living spaces above and giving the impression that, you know, there, there, there's another source, but maybe you don't know that. So working with the IEP to really define the type of testing, the location, the number of sampling, and what could possibly influence that sample that has nothing to do with the primary area of concern. So the next part is how are we assessing? Are we doing visual moisture readings, black glove testing? We talked about that review of the remedial history. We've mentioned that a few times. How are we sampling air surface? These are things that are important. Um, and then how much sampling? So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the statistical and health-based considerations. Uh, professional judgment on the part of the IEP makes a huge role or plays a huge role in the collection and interpretation of samples. Um, we understand that samples are limited, but inherently it boils down to the IEP uh, connecting the dots, taking what they know about the history of the home, the visual evidence of the home, the layout of the home, what was done to remediate, the techniques, the controls, the level of cleaning, the type of cleaning, where the chemicals used. That's a lot of information that the IEP then needs to apply and use their professional judgment to help interpret the results because each one of those things could affect the, the levels they find. And normal fungal ecology, normal microbial ecology is not a static number. It varies. It varies with, with by the minute, by the second, by the season, and by the living conditions. What's normal for that environment? 
So it's important that you respect, if you're the occupant especially, that the IEP has a lot on their plate to interpret. There are huge limitations with sampling, oftentimes not being stati statistically significant, especially with air sampling. Uh, Dr. Brandy, once again, does a great job providing statistical considerations in his book, uh, Post-Remediation Testing and Verification for Mold and Bacteria, um, to state the, the amount of limitations that exist, um, the statistical significance that's involved. Um, the amount of sampling that we would like to do to have a high level, say 95% confidence level, um, would be usually cost prohibitive for most people in my experience. Um, you're talking about, um, depending on your level of confidence and um, standard deviation, all that stuff, you could be upwards of 15 to 20 or 30 air samples alone if that was the metric being used, if that was the type of sampling in a containment. For those of you that have experienced mold remediation and clearance testing in the past, can you imagine how much that would be? I mean, it gets pretty expensive. Some IEPs will try and offset their testing criteria, their pass or fail, and make it uh, more conservative due to a lack of statistical significance by lowering their standard. And here's what I mean. Earlier, I, I, I mentioned um, Dr. Robertson mentioning this whole criteria of less than or equal to 2,000 spores per cubic meter a pass, right? Well, the IEP may look at that and say, well, I know I'm not collecting um, as many samples, so I'm going to say I'm going to go for 20% of that concentration or uh, less than or equal to 400 spores per cubic meter uh, in order to increase the confidence in the samples collected. So they'll offset and lower that number from 2,000 to say a lower number of 400 because they understand that they're not collecting four, five, six, seven or more samples inside of the containment, usually due to cost. But as you can see, in certain situations, if you, if you go too low, it may be impossible to pass the containment area on account of just outdoor influence. The remediation company could have done, in fact, a fabulous job remediating and cleaning. But if it's a really moldy outdoor environment, by way of example, there's going to be enough infiltration. It's not, you're not testing a hermetically sealed um, containment area. And at 20% or even 30, 40, 50% may be hard to achieve. So again, it's working up front with the IEP to understand what are the limitations that they're aware of? What are they doing to address that? And does that seem like a realistic um, expectation for everybody? Some IEPs, I include myself in this, um, done this for years, will collect dust samples. Um, uh, actually, let me talk about total dust uh, first. Uh, they will um, sample uh, dust uh, off of a floor, a measured area, um, based on weight, and then they may, depending on the weight of it, they may pass it, or if it's kind of uh, questionable, they may opt to have the dust cultured to see if there's any indicator molds present. And that, that's something that's referenced in the Green Book, Chapter 18, talks about that type of an approach. That's primarily a dust sample. Um, the reference is there in bold. Um, uh, the next line, IEPs, uh, myself, uh, I include myself in this, we will do air and surface dust to increase the confidence level when interpreting. So not all molds behave the same. You know, it's not, you're not always going to have a mold spore, mold fragment, mold structure hovering in the air, waiting conveniently to be collected by an air sample. A lot of things in a sedentary environment like that will settle out. So I'm a big fan and have been for many years of sampling the surface dust. And um, 
the, the post-remediation book that I've referenced multiple times does mention um, some kind of a guideline criteria to use to pass or fail dust. Dust is really tricky um, because what is normal uh, for a containment area? There's other limitations too. Um, um, QPCR testing requires at least, uh, depending on the lab, uh, it could be five milligrams of dust in, in an environment that you've just cleaned. You may not have five milligrams of dust. So there's, there's limitations um, with dust sampling, but I like to combine the two. Um, and when I do microscopy sampling due to budget limitations and, and other issues, or if I'm not working with somebody who's extremely sensitive, um, I'll do a combination of air and dust on microscopy and combine that with other criteria, visual evidence, do I see any debris, what is the history of the home, what was remediated, that sort of thing, to ascertain my version of how clean this environment is. Uh, just because I knew it probably would be interesting to, to, to learn, um, again, uh, Dr. Brandy's in his book, he, he did some number crunching according to the curves and um, the statistics that he was working on. He says, when doing the absolute lowest cost mold spore PRV air testing, the absolute minimum number of samples would be three in the remediation area, one in the control area, and one in an outdoor air sample for a total of five samples. But then he continues to go on to mention that there's certain suggestions and recommendations um, that include both spore trap and culturing of the air to provide a better picture of what's going on in the home and building. So you, you, you could end up easily stacking up as a minimum four to seven samples inside of a containment area. And that's just the air sampling that he's talking about. He's not referencing the surface dust at that point in his statement. I think that this kind of leads to this whole thing about, okay, number of samples. It's really important to understand the type of analysis being performed because there are inherent limitations. We've talked about this in a previous podcast uh, uh, between direct examination, culturing, qPCR, et cetera. Um, with direct examination, for example, that's also known as microscopy, somebody looking underneath the microscope. It doesn't identify mold fragments. Okay. And depending on what study you read, there's anywhere from, on average, 300 to 500 fragments per spore from a source. The other thing that uh, microscopy doesn't do is it doesn't speciate. With the magnification and what they're using and the fact that they're looking at the spores, they can't differentiate between species. In fact, in some cases, they can't even differentiate between genus. That's why we call it aspergillus slash penicillium. That represents thousands of species, but the spores look so similar under the microscope that they, the, 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 the laboratory technician can't um, differentiate. And there are some spores that are so indistinguishable or so small that they're flat out just not being able to be identified. Um, there's too small, and they may be there in high quantity. They won't see them. Kind of is similar with the whole, they can't identify fragments. Now, that doesn't mean hyphal fragments. That's different. I'm talking about, imagine if that mold spore was busted up into 100 fragments. That's what I mean, or other parts of the mold structure. Um, with culturing, the, one of the main known limitations is that anything that's present but non-viable won't grow. If it can't grow because it's non-viable, you will not see it on the Petri dish. There's other limitations having to do with competition, meaning what if there is a mold? There's two molds that are present in this example. One mold um, is in less concentration in the environment, but it loves the auger that it's growing on better than the other mold that's present that's in way higher quantity. And due to competition, the lower concentration mold wins out, grows, and you don't ever detect or see on the Petri dish the other mold that was technically present in a higher concentration. Now, that's a convenient example. There's others. 
there's different augers that are used to um, facilitate growth of certain species to facilitate that growth because of what their physiology is. What do they need to grow? And um, you, it may, it's not uncommon to have two or three Petri dishes used on, on a culturing sample to really kind of get a, a fuller picture of what viable molds or fungal structures can be present that would grow. And if the argument here is that they're trying to do an environmental clean, and let's say they remediated an area that had old growth on it, it's not viable, it won't grow, but it's, it's there and it can cause an inflammatory response with you, something adverse. Petri dish sampling may not help you identify the, the presence of that non-viable um, presence of structure there. It may help identify viable and that could be helpful, but it's a limitation. How you quantify that limitation uh, is tricky, and it depends on the situation that we're learning and talking about now. QPCR, we mentioned that earlier, quantitative polymerase chain reaction. Now, this is the testing that most people, if you know it at all, um, associate with ERMI or Hertzme uh, dust sampling. Dr. Richie Shoemaker um, uh, really came out with the Hertzme analysis and his own version of the ERMI analysis in the earlier years. And a lot of people who have CIRS or even other illnesses where their clinicians are still using that method of sampling the home uh, is a good test in terms that it can identify mold fragments so long as there is DNA in the sample and that it is one of the 36 or technically a little bit more 40 uh, species that can be detected with that particular ERMI panel analysis. Is it fraught with limitations just like anything else? Well, sure it is. Um, there are big issues and big talks right now about inhibition, the ability that there could be something in, a, uh, in the environment com uh, combined with the dust that you're sampling looking for mold uh, that can prevent the identification of that DNA. It, it, the machine can't detect it. That's inhibition, and that's a simplified explanation. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't separate between... Um, viable or non-viable for those who are maybe are worried about that. Maybe you do have a fungal disease. Maybe you have aspergillosis. And so understanding viability is important. Um, you're not going to get that. You're not going to be able to differentiate that. That's the same thing with microscopy. It's total count. It's not looking for dead or alive. Um, and there are others. It, it's, uh, you know, when you get into qPCR, you're, you usually associate that more with dust sampling. It's, it's, I've done it with air, but um, it's more associated uh, with dust sampling. Gravimetric dust is more just looking at total dust count. Um, best way to learn more about that is to read the green book by the AIHA. That's Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. Um, that would be the one that I've referenced right here. Chapter 18 kind of gets into that whole thing right there. Um, but that's important because, um, you know, what does testing for the total weight do? Is it really telling you about exposure or is it more addressing the cleanliness question? I think it's the latter. It's a measure of cleanliness. Can you can you culture the dust? Can you analyze it further? Yes, you can. Um, but interpreting dust is tricky because even where the containment's at and what may influence the containment, the level of cleaning, the type of surfaces, that sort of thing that you're sampling from can all affect ultimately what would be otherwise a normal reading, meaning an area that's not been impacted by an indoor or nearby source, but it's just normal buildup from the outdoor environment. The timing question I already kind of hit pretty well. The takeaway is that the timing matters. If you're sampling right after the containment, your primary question you are addressing is how well of a job did they clean? How, how well of a job did they do cleaning? And 
that to me is the primary purpose of a PRV test. It's if you're trying to look at the efficacy of the clean, you don't wait four to six weeks for that. Um, there are exceptions. There are other narratives that would promote waiting, but by and large, um, you would sample a few days. There are uh, a lot of people, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, there are people that I'm aware of, and I include myself in a few scenarios myself, that, that we will, because of the circumstances or the ability that we're not in a rush to return the home to a um, livable environment, we will let the environment sit. Maybe it was a whole house gut. Uh, there's a number of other situations where you would wait four to six weeks, but when you wait four to six weeks, one of the things, if you're using this test to pay the remediation company is you need to consider that it may not be fair for them. And I mentioned that earlier, but I'm, I'm coming right back around to that because I've had to defend many remediation companies in the past, not, not because I'm trying to support bad work. I, I don't have that reputation, but what we're trying to do is give them a fair shot. And if you give your house four to six weeks or a length of time like that, there's a higher chance that there could be another hidden source or even normal buildup of outdoor molds that build up inside and it could be interpreted that the remediation company didn't do a good job cleaning when in fact that wasn't the case. So timing needs to be considered when you're doing this testing. Bottom line, there does not exist only one method of PRV assessing and testing a containment area or home or building that is unanimously agreed upon. And oftentimes budget, timeline, and the IEP's knowledge and experience limit a more comprehensive assessment. I would say that 99% of the assessments that I do, the PRVs I do, are limited by budget. Timeline plays a role as well. My knowledge and limit of it and experience certainly would play a role. But budget happens to be a big issue. And, um, when the majority of Americans are living close to paycheck to paycheck, and when, a P, when an IEP goes out to do a, say, a more comprehensive test that maybe on the books is three or $4,000, it shouldn't be surprising to the audience to know that they can't afford that. So I feel like it's, it is, but it isn't an elephant in the room that we have to address. Promoting best practices versus what we're actually able to do, both of those issues need to be discussed. For individuals suffering from a chronic illness or low-dose environmental exposure concern, a home or building can be recommended to be sampled more than once in order to evaluate a potential source or sources and exposure concerns over time. So as an example, you may do a PRV test two to three days after the work has been done, the work meaning the remediation and the cleaning, but then you may decide to do a test four to six weeks down the road, maybe... Um, right after repairs are done or literally four to six weeks afterwards um, to help us understand is there something else that could be in the home. And there's a lot of things to consider. If you're going to have repair work done, one of the questions you would have is, well, did the contractor that came in to do the repairs um, not necessarily cross-contaminate the home, but dirty the home up again to where you need to reclean it and then wait another four to six weeks before you retest it? Because you don't know where that contractor's been. Did that contractor just get done working in a moldy home or a basement? Did they bring in a contaminated drywall if that's what they're working with? There's a whole number of reasons why follow-up work can inadvertently cause more confusion to the interpretation of your sample. And this is a classic case of what can happen when you hire a IEP to do a test a few days after the work's been done, 
And then due to budget issues, you decide yourself, the occupant, to get your own samples and do your own sampling. The results come back bad or in that gray area. And that anxiety and that stress and that fear start to rise again. Not that it should, but it does sometimes. Because you're thinking now that maybe things are worse or, the, or, or, or certainly not better than what you were hoping they would be. And you really need to consider that there are a lot of reasons why that could have been the case. And it may not be due to, again, a lack of cleaning by the remediation company. It may not be due to the fact that maybe you don't have a, a problem elsewhere in the home. Maybe it was just because of the way that other contractors, trade occupants are going in and out of the home that they've brought in with them these microbials that you've detected, and now you think you have a problem that's in the home, and really it's not. Really, it's just residual that can be cleaned up. Uh, not convenient, but a lot easier to digest and deal with mentally, physically, and financially than trying to go uh, microbial hunting, trying to find a, a source that may never actually have existed. Uh, and that's just a note that it's not uncommon for a PRV when performed to include a visual assessment of the work area in addition to the collection of samples. Um, what I mean to say on that point is that uh, I said it in the very beginning, but when we look at samples and we interpret them, I, we don't just look at the number and then like have tunnel vision. Sometimes how we interpret that number, which is why there's no black and white uh, one method of, of what's a pass and what's a fail. Yeah, it depends on what we know about the environment. Did we sample in the wintertime? Did we sample in the summertime? Did we sample in a really dirty, dusty home with people who have a lot of dirt and debris? Is it a very clean home? Is it hard flooring? Do they have an air conditioning system? Do they not have an air conditioning system? What are the limitations of this sample? Sure, the number's low, but this test doesn't really identify fragments, so should I err on the side of caution and go even more? There is a lot that is determined, and even the visual evidence. Well, they did a crappy job with the containment. It fell down twice. If the containment breaches and it comes off a wall, uh, this plastic containment, a lot of times that's enough to press the pause button and say, you know, you need the remediation company to come back out there, resecure the containment. Now there's going to be a question of whether or not you should clean the area outside the, uh, the containment if it already hasn't been scheduled for cleaning. So the history and the visual evidence are a part of the process. It's not just looking at merely the numbers. It's trying to appreciate that environment so we can better understand where this mold or where this bacteria, whatever it is you're sampling, uh, is coming from. And as a final point, our primary question after a recently remediated or cleaned area is, how clean is the environment? That should be our primary question only. Does it look like a pre-loss environment? Meaning, if you had never had a moldy kitchen sink cabinet, let's just pretend, what would that environment look like if you had no other hidden sources? That would be normal microbial ecology, right? Um, does that test a couple of days later reflect normal micro microbial ecology or better? because it's been environmentally clean, maybe it does look better. And our primary question when sampling weeks or months after a remediated cleaned area should be, do other sources of contamination exist indoors or nearby? And by indoor, nearby, I mean in a crawl space, in the ductwork, you're technically not living there uh, in those areas per se. Um, and that's what you need to remember. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us on our website, ieprradio.com. I thank you for the time, for listening. I know that was a mouthful. Um, as you can see, post-remediation verification assessments and testing is complicated. Um, we don't have a one-size-fits-all, but we do have guidelines, the guidelines that I mentioned to you today that we can use to help determine whether uh, a remediation company did whatever level of cleanliness we deem it to be. Does it look cleaner? Does it reflect normal microbial ecology? And those are the things to get us moving forward in your project and in your home 
so that you can get your house put back together and not have to worry about there being other hidden sources in that remediated area or um, residual contamination that needs to be cleaned up. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.